Welcome everybody to this episode of Mothers Talking and today we really have got quite a few mothers talking. <laughs> Normally it's just me and Jenna so it's lovely to have two um, other people on with today, Lonnie and Laura and both mums, Lonnie's mother of two, Laura's mother of one, well two sort of one, oh, well you can explain, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, we're all mothers and we're going to talk today about trust. And before I introduce you both, or you say hi, I, I want to just explain a bit about what, what I mean. I suppose it's the chemistry. I was thinking it's kind of the chemistry of trust is something I'm interested in. So what do we feel like when we trust ourselves? Something for us to think about. Is that confidence in a sense? I mean, what, what is the difference? It's the same thing in a way, but it feels deeper to me. And then I just we're just going to sort of just see how that how we probably all felt about our trust of, of ourselves in pregnancy and for birth and even beyond. So welcome both of you. Welcome Lonnie. Welcome Laura. Hi. Um, yeah, nice to have you here. And I'm sorry, it's a Monday morning, everybody. So we're all a bit like done in. <laughs> Should be, or maybe you're not. I am. I feel like. Uh, Anyway, so I'm sorry to um, launch this at you at the very first thing on, on the start of the week. But can we begin? Yeah, by first of all, um, I have been thinking about it this sort of last night and this morning. I was thinking it's a subject that gets me very excited and I don't really know why. And I think I think probably people who listen to me either in my book or on other podcasts or in my classes, I, I get very fizzed up about trust and yet it's such a sort of waffly thing isn't it I just wonder could Lonnie could you say what it means to you like what does trusting yourself mean okay so I think trusting in myself in birth um wasn't something that I guess came naturally because I think when we get pregnant we get thrown straight into a system and we are almost uh taught to hand our trust over to other people so that might be your GP, that could be your midwife, that could be obstetrician, many different people. So I think trusting in yourself in birth isn't something that is drilled into us from the beginning. So it's something we have to really, it's it's within us, but we have to listen to ourselves, which is quite hard to do in today's society. So I guess it's about learning about birth and understanding what it is to give birth, what it is to, to grow a baby and then birth a baby and then listening to our own bodies and trusting that we can do something that we've never done before, which can be scary and can be unknown. And that's when people like doulas and pregnancy yoga teachers and hypnobirthing teachers really come into their own because, and other friends promoting positive birth. It's about, you know, really having the support team around us to know that our bodies can do this and to listen to ourselves you made me just think of something which I had never thought of, which is it's kind of a race, isn't it? Because you get pregnant and you're right. The, the first feeling is there's someone out there who is um, who knows more than me kind of thing. And you have to go to them. You you assume in a sort of Western so-called advanced society, you sort of go, well, there's some, I need to tell somebody, first of all, that I'm pregnant. Somebody needs to know, you know, somebody important needs to know <laughs> other than me, which is hilarious. You know, even that you could wonder about, you know, you know, that we make that assumption that we've immediately got to get on the uh, 
on the conveyor belt sort of thing. But you're right. What happens is then through pregnancy, we start to build or find or activate our trust in ourselves just through the sheer action of the baby growing. You go, wow, wow. And so you start kind of getting interested and excited by what your body knows anyway. But by then you're already in that system where you've already deferred uh, you know you've already handed over and outsourced that so it's a bit of a race isn't it between one's own confidence building and to the level to which a system completely takes over so I hadn't thought of it like that is that what happened yeah. to you then Do you I know? think about my first pregnancy um with Ollie and I was kind of so excited to do my first scan I did early pregnancy scans and I did this and that and each scan I'd be nervous thinking is everything okay? Because I guess it's uh, like, oh, like, am I going to have a miscarriage? And then is the baby going to be okay? And is it this and is it that? And they're obviously valid concerns, but each time rather than kind of going, okay, I know how to grow this baby. I'm like, oh, what's the scan going to say? And what's the next scan going to say? And what's the obstetrician going to say about this? So I kind of had already been conditioned into handing over my trust to somebody else. And um, you kind of get thrown into that system. And that's that. And we forget about the fact that our bodies are doing it and we're growing a baby. And the scan is a kind of standard rubber stamp, even though we're the ones with the the growing feelings and the, the movement by then even. And yet we're still sort of waiting for the okay. Is everything okay? Is everything okay? And that's where, you know, yeah, I, I've got this thing actually at the moment where I say in the class, don't forget that when you go for that 20 week scan, it isn't just about anomalies or otherwise, or it's it should be that you feel okay, you know, uh, things are think I'm well, my baby's well, and you should be celebrating that when you leave. Mm, a reassurance of what you already know. Yes, yeah, and that was where the trust could begin. Laura, what do you? How do you see it? Well, I think you firstly reminded me of something for, like that I had never thought of until really recently um, about even how. And now I'm and now I'm thinking about it, it goes even further back than this, but even how we find out we're pregnant. I'd never thought about this before, but that like the, you know, we pee on like the thing to find out we're pregnant, but really we already know we're pregnant by that point, but we don't like but but it, it's not a real pregnancy until you peed on the thing or whatever and got the got the confirmation from that. And even then, like I'm sure most people are like me. Yeah, like you say, you need to go and report it to somebody. And then I think it's quite, it's very shocking. It, uh, this card again and again with people I've spoken to. It's very shocking that you like bring your GP and they're like, yeah, okay, congratulations. <laughs> so they're like, what do you want me to do about it? You know? And it's really <laughs> interesting because I'm still breastfeeding, but my periods have come back and and my periods are quite irregular. And so like a, a few times I've been like, oh my, oh no. <laughs> Am I having another baby? But now I feel like, I don't even like, I just want to wait it out because, you know, like I don't even want to take a pregnancy test anymore because I'm like, I feel like I've really, the opposite of outsourcing. I've wanted to insource now every piece of information about what's going on. I don't really think that anything outside of me has anything to tell me. Anymore. That's beautiful. I love that. <laughs> you know, that, or it, it might offer an explanation or like a diagnosis if I feel something going wrong in the first place, but I don't need... If I feel completely fine, then I don't, you know, if I feel pregnant, then I'm probably pregnant. So that's kind that's of interesting. That's so interesting. The foundation of trust, really, isn't it? And yet, and yet we don't really get it maybe till the second time or or not the yeah. second time, through the experience of raising one. 
and having given birth the first time that you go ah okay this is inside me yeah exactly exactly you're absolutely right I know for my first pregnancy I had that experience I peed on how many sticks and then I went to my GP and I said I think I'm pregnant she said okay so you did three pregnancy tests and they were positive yes well you're pregnant I'm like are you going to do something she was like well I can blood test you if you want me to or whatever she did. So she did, no, maybe she did her more thorough pee check. I can't remember. So she did it and she was like, yep, you're definitely pregnant. (laughs) And then I know for my second time around with Ivy, I peed on the stick and I was like, oh, I'm pregnant. And I was like, cool. And I was like, ring nobody, tell nobody, just I'm pregnant. That's cool. My body knows what to do. And it took me, I think, until 16, 20 weeks to actually register with the hospital because yeah. I was like, I'm pregnant. Good. That's great. Running your own show. Yeah. See, this is why I wanted you two on. Cause I, you're thinkers and I, I love, I love just not, you know, it's never wrote with you two. It's like, you just feel, Oh yeah, that makes me think of this. That makes me think of that. And you just sparked something else in me, Laura. Cause I just thought, well, both of you, sorry, when you said, so we need witnessing. So, I was thinking, well, actually, there is a bit of natural need there that's obviously missing in the process. And that we go to some random strange GP or whatever, wanting the confirmation, probably from some, it would be natural, I think, that in, you know, traditionally it would have been a mother group, or sort of mother group of women, your, you know, your family circle, where you'd have had some kind of honouring of that, which may be like an ignition key in the trust, because it would have been a natural... <gasps> you're joining us, you're joining us, come, come, come into the circle, you know, there's this kind of, and you look, I think as modern women, we're looking for that feeling of, oh, okay, this is a new territory, a terra incognita, you know, can somebody first just open the door before, you know, creating the map for your journey of pregnancy and birth, you just want the door opened to say welcome, you know, and that then starts presumably traditionally hundreds of years ago would have maybe started that journey of right this is yours this is your body this is your baby growing and you come into your own experience of it but we have that chopped off don't we because we get the gp going what well yeah okay so what you know um we also have a little bit of culture of going the opposite way um you kind of find out you're pregnant maybe you're four or five six weeks and then you go into hiding I can't tell anybody, you know, like what if something happens and what will everybody say and I can't face it. And I I haven't been through a miscarriage, so I have a lot of sympathy for people that have been through that and that must feel very painful and scary. But I also feel sad that women, as women, we feel that we have to navigate that alone and that's kind of the culture is don't say anything until 12 weeks and the scan makes it real. Um, it's okay about to talk about it early and it's okay to seek support from other women that have been through the same thing and that's life and it feels a long time actually if I remember rightly I can remember it felt I mean six weeks with a massive piece of information is is it's a lot and it's as you say it's a kind of slightly mythical omission and not mythical what I mean like a slightly well it's ritualistic isn't it certainly everyone does it and yet actually as you say it doesn't make sense because if you do, then it's even more of a shock for friends and family to say, oh, by the way, I was pregnant, now I'm not, or something. If it didn't work out, why is that something you wouldn't have said? It's, yeah, it doesn't really add up. From one first baby to second baby, second baby, I was announcing from the rooftops, I'm pregnant again because I thought if this doesn't work out, 
and things don't go to plan, that's exactly who I need is all my mum friends and all my family around me because this is what I'm going through. It's so true. It's so interesting. So to your experiences, like each, like what happened with your fir- um, first babies, I mean, you both had, I, so everybody's got a bit of context. I know Laura and Lonnie through my yoga classes and some doula support in various ways I've given them. And, you know, they, they're both, you, you, you know, very intense things have happened to you that I would say are sadly very standard. Yeah. So actually, Laura, do you, do you mind sharing first, like, a bit about like that end of pregnancy experience for you how it it felt to be trusted or otherwise and how you came into your own trust of yourself yeah sure it's funny because when you keep on saying trust like the first thing that I thought about is actually the trust that was broken between me and the people that I thought were going to help me if I needed any assistance so trust like it obviously goes yeah both ways you know but so this really is is the way that my sorry just to interrupt I did mean that as well actually I yeah. meant even trust of our children beyond I think actually trusting ourselves is what gives us the capacity as mothers to trust our children growing their lives so it's a kind yeah. of inherent so it's, it's always reciprocal isn't it um yeah so this is kind of <laughs> a story of me growing trust in myself and also losing trust in some other people um so yeah I think Somehow I feel like I knew, and you probably picked up on this through the um, yoga sessions that I like knew. I just I don't know whether it was like instinctive or like from what I'd read or maybe from I'd extrapolated from my friends' experiences having babies because I didn't know anybody who'd had like a home birth before I was pregnant. I I knew that I kind of went into my pregnancy feeling like. I was, it was going to be a bit of a battle between me and the maternity services anyway. Um, but I don't really, I really can't like specify why I, why I thought that, but I guess it's just maybe that general feeling of like a big organization against me here by myself. And so throughout my pregnancy, I'd always, you know, I'd had white coat syndrome because you, with my blood pressure, every time I went in for the appointments, because I was always so worried that something, that one of these markers was going to say something. And then I would be railroaded into a, a pathway that I didn't, um, not only that I didn't want to be, but that was like going to be inappropriate for me. Um, and so I feel like I, I had a long time, luckily, because I was thinking that way, I had a long time to prepare <laughs> for the for the ultimate battle that came at the end of my pregnancy there were times that things could have happened before that but I knew I already knew some of the things and so I put them to a stop like um for example at 39 weeks I had um yeah I'm yeah anyway. measure your bump to see if your baby is growing correctly which I was just find kind of funny and that came up as maybe like a centimeter too small or something that week and so my my midwife kind of booked in booked me in for a growth scan phrased it in the terms of she didn't phrase it to me in the terms of like an emergency growth scan but then when she but I was in the room when she rings the hospital and then she was like we'd like an urgent emergency scan or whatever and I was like okay anyway luckily they didn't have any urgent appointments for two days so I went home (laughs) and (laughs) so I went home and was able to think about it and I 
I think the story of my partner supporting this is really important as well. But he was with me at all of the um all of my midwife appointments. And so on the way home, we were talking about it and I was like, this just doesn't feel like, like the right thing to do. I don't want to go into hospital at 39 weeks. I think they basically have a blanket policy. You go into hospital regardless of what of anything about you and your pregnancy, if you're 39 weeks, why not get the baby out? And I was so I just didn't want to risk it. And so we had talked about that. And then I had an, a really amazing conversation. This is something that like these conversations with other mums just are so helpful. I had a conversation with my cousin who's younger than me. She's, she's in her twenties. She had had just really, she, she really briefly, she basically got, had gotten up to 41 plus five um, in her pregnancy and got to that point where, um, yeah, she was, she was asked to be induced and then it ended in an emergency C-section. So she had this, this quite common experience and had talked to me quite a lot about it. And so then when I went, I went around to see her and her baby about this growth scan situation. And we talked about it for like a long time. It was probably like, and I was around her house for about probably about two hours before she finally just said, which I understand why it took her a long time to say. She basically was just like, if I were you, like, I just wouldn't go. I just wouldn't go. And she was like, she was like, from my experience, I just don't think if you, if you don't think anything's wrong and you go into hospital at 39 weeks, you're just not going to be able to leave. And that was kind of something that I felt as, as well. And that's why I, I didn't want to go. And all of this, like for anybody, I think who's you know, outs outside of these experiences might be thinking right now well what's you know like you should err on the side of caution you know um what's like what can really what really bad thing can come of like this extra precaution or whatever and i just would like to draw a line under that because there's lots of bad things that can come from over measuring and the main piece of information that i think needs to be held on to is that I felt fine and my baby felt fine inside you when you just said that your cousin said cousin did you say yeah, said, cousin, uh, yeah. if you feel it's fine and people will consider that probably listen to this like really airy fairy what do you know kind of thing but that's what we're talking about here trust yeah. Yeah. the woman mother knows a lot I mean growth scans at that point I mean we all exactly not exactly. Very, very very difficult to be accurate because the baby's so squished in there and cool. so I did a bit of, I had done a bit of research on the accuracy of growth, growth scans at that stage. And I think it's 50-50 if I'm right up to 40 weeks, like in that period, right up to 40 weeks, that last bit of your pregnancy. After that, it becomes less likely that they will get the size right than they will. Um, so anyway, so... And also at this end of your pregnancy, you have like, a, you do have multiple meetings with your midwife. So it was this, so because of the two days, I think it was only another couple of days until I had another midwife meeting anyway. So I just rang her and said, um, I don't think I need to go for the scan. Everything feels fine. Can we wait until our next appointment? We'll measure it again and um, go from there. And my midwife was really, really, because you know, I was so nervous. I was almost like shaking, ringing her to like tell her that I didn't want to go. But she was so gracious. She immediately was like, "I'm, I'm really sorry. I should have, uh, you know, I should have discussed this more with you at the time. You know, it's fine. We'll definitely measure it again at the weekend and, and go from there." And then we measured it at the weekend. It was the right measurement, the right measurement for the for the time. So that was avoided. 
and yes sorry just the story before before the story but just an example of like how these things can even come how they just come up and they can come up in a way that you think might be so benign but um I really feel like it's a very good example because it's training you were training yourself like you say that's and true, even yeah. the kind of, I mean, it sounds awful to say that one needs to do that, but you are learning to trust yourself in that experience. So it's really valid, yeah. That's true. And, you know, I was so nervous, like I said, and, and shaking when I rang her. And that was the first time that I guess I had, like, oh, declined care. And so that was really, truly, like, practice for, for doing it later. And I was with the home birth team, and I feel like they were quite, because uh, because you're case loaded, you get to see the same people over and over again. I think by that point, they really like knew who I knew who I was and what I wanted, and so I'd been I'd drawn all these like quite hard boundaries about not being asked about, about induction because I wasn't going <laughs> to because I didn't want to have an induction, and so I didn't really come up against anything again until the end of week forty one when I wasn't asked to go in for an induction at that point, but I was asked to have a chat with the um, consultant midwife. And she was, yeah, she was great. She was really um, level-headed about it all and not not at all fear-mongery, which was really helpful. She described she described the risks she had to, I, I assume she like had to describe, but she described them in a really like, responsible way that actually allowed you to think about them without being scared out of your wits or whatever. So that was quite helpful. It shows um, it's possible, doesn't it, Laura? It shows definitely, it's possible. Definitely. Um, and, yeah, I also had another midwife during that time being like, are you sure your dates are right? Or whatever, um, being like, you know, maybe you're not. It, it kind of like wink, wink, <laughs> like, can you recalculate your dates so that you're not? And I was just like, this is so absurd. You and I both know that this is the date that I'm actually at, but you also you're trying to offer me like some sort of ticket through this system. If I can go around telling everybody, am I not actually forty two weeks? Like the dates were a little bit wrong. Then maybe someone will give me a little bit of leeway or whatever. So that yeah, it was a bit funny. Anyway. And my first pregnancy, so you have, like, not you have to, but you, at some point you have to have some faith in the people who are, like, <laughs> supposed to be offering you care. And so I didn't feel that I, you know, I didn't want to completely disregard everything everyone was saying at 42 weeks. So at that point, the standard pathway of care is to be induced but if you won't be induced then you the other pathway of care um is to have monitoring um and to go in i think it's it's either daily or every other day for monitoring so the first day i went in for monitoring and i didn't it's funny like because i look back and i'm like why did i think that this was going to go okay but anyway so i went in and I just had a really awful time. It was the, it was my 42nd week of pregnancy, uh, like on the dot practically. And I went in, had my scan. The sonographer, I don't even know, like I feel I don't really usually like like talking like nastily about people, but there's no really like other way to put it. She was just like really horrid to me from the beginning. You know, like the, literally the first interaction we had is, you know, I'd been waiting in the waiting room 
I didn't want to go to the loo because I didn't want to miss my miss my name being called. So then when she called me, I was like, can I just pop into the loo, which I'm right next to? The... And she was like, there's somebody in there, like, it's going to be ages if you... And I'm like 42 weeks pregnant at this point. Like, literally everyone in the world knows that a 42-week pregnant person needs to go to the loo. You should probably just let them go to the loo. Especially if you're about to put, a, you know, an ultrasound thing on their bladder. Like, anyway. So it, did, it was just kind of mean. Like, I don't really, like, know any other way to put it set off the tone like really badly because at this point after the growth scans uh, the growth scan situation from earlier I had done a lot of research on growth scans and so I'd said you can scan the baby and we can look for whatever you're like looking for but I don't want the baby's growth to be measured because and and there were reasons that I um, wanted this the main one being that if your if your baby statistically speaking if your baby has measured big on one of these scans which it is unlikely to be accurate very unlikely to be accurate at this point there's a 20 percent chance that it's likely to be accurate at this stage of pregnancy if somebody thinks that if your caregivers think that your baby is big you are likely to have worse outcomes regardless of the actual size of your baby so i didn't want anybody so i just i just thought there's no point in people knowing my baby's big or not you know, and it's also not, it might not be true. So I'm not having measured because it actually, I don't Hang on, that is extraordinary. I have never heard that. Yes. So you mean surely by talk about outsourcing experience. So you mean literally just this other people's expectations can literally shape your experience. So you mean yeah, other people's so- yeah, so I so basically the way that I saw it was that it's it would be like it's dangerous to me and my baby for you to think that it's big, whether it's it's like more dangerous for you to think it's big than it for it to actually be big. So because I guess it makes people more cautious, they start to take action because they think, oh, this baby's too big or whatever. Anyway, yeah, so that's so anyway, so that was one of the so so I had and and I think part of me also so I had asked not the size of the baby not to be measured and I also think with things like this at this point I really wanted people to know the, the inter- people I was interacting with that I knew what I was talking about and that I trusted yourself and, yeah and, and I trusted myself and, and just that you know I was I'm allowed to, I want I kind of want especially with decisions like this, this where I there was reason not to have it, but I also didn't think it was make or break whether we knew what size the baby was at this point. I kind of just wanted to assert my independence in those situations to remind everybody that I'm I'm in, I'm in charge. Yeah. But I have a phrase for this, so we can make it. I think some take homes when people listen to these, it's really good for them to use certain phrases, and you two have got loads of them. What I'm hearing when you say that is that you also have authority. Yeah. And that goes to the trust thing. It's like in those meetings, I find that so and many... And knowledge. Authority, authority because of your knowledge. You're yeah. internalised, very high-resolution information coming from that child. Your own research, so that's all intellectual knowledge, but equally your physical knowledge. Every so many aspects of knowledge give you authority to be equal, if not obviously above your caregivers, because your knowledge is complete. Mm-hmm. Um and this is not only is there no ever any recognition the mother knows anything, but it's always assumed that the mother knows less in some, if at all, anything. But I totally applaud that, of course, you should be saying, you know, my authority counts here, where I'm coming from. Yeah, so sorry, yeah. Karen. I just, I no, just it's really- okay. It's just... It's just funny because this was met with the first thing, which not the first thing, because the first thing was the loo thing. 
first thing when we get into the scanning room was, oh, you're the one who doesn't want your baby's measurements. <laughs> and I just like, it's not nice to be referred to as the one, you know, like you're the one, you're the, you know, it's implied that you're like the troublemaker or the different one or whatever. It was just like a negative start. Anyway, this is just kind of to set the scene of how just like, I just don't think the care, like, and people describe this often and it makes me really sad because I don't, I don't think that many of the people who are actually perpetuating this, this horrible care, I don't even know what's the opposite of care. It's not care. Like, who are uh, give it? Who are making women feel like this? Even like I don't think in their better moments they would like want to want to make people in in our situation feel like this. But um, but she did. And then and luckily this is during COVID. But Tom was allowed to be with me, so we were just there together. And then we we had the scan. All that was said during the scan was that there was no water, no amniotic fluid in my womb. And Lonnie will get onto her story, but this is exactly what Lonnie had been through. Um, and so I kind and I and because Lonnie had mentioned it a week before, I'd done quite a lot of research on the amount of amniotic fluid post um, forty-two weeks. So, the, so the, there were lots of other things that also went were just rude and wrong and terrible about the way this this scan went. But um, but for the sake of the brevity i'll leave them out it was just yeah it's just a bad experience but i came out of that we're a little bit nervous because because i think lonnie your, yours have been you've had told me about lo- like low waters whereas all of a sudden it become no waters and i was like is there a difference between low and no i don't know um Maybe in there rolling around dry <laughs> yeah 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 exactly and anyway so i came out and then I had actually completely forgotten about this until the beginning of this podcast. I think I just blocked it out from my memory. Tom wasn't allowed to sit with me in the waiting room. So I had to sit there by myself. And then the sonographer came back. Basically, because of these low waters, I've been asked to stay and see the obstetrician and have a CTG. And I'm sitting in the waiting room. And then she came over to me and I was like, Sorry, we, we, you know, I feel like we're kind of rushed out of there a little bit. Is there, you know, was there anything else like that, you know, other than the no waters? And she was like, yeah, it kind of looked like maybe the blood was like not really getting to your baby's head because I could see of like this blood shunting. To, she used the word shunting, the blood shunting towards your baby's head. And I don't really know what that like means, but maybe that, you know, it could be a sign that baby's like in distress and not getting enough blood to its brain. But uh, the obstetrician will talk to you about it later. This was like in the waiting room in front of all the other mums. And I was just, this was obviously like quite a quite a horrific thing to say to um to say to somebody sorry Laura can we just emphasize I remember you sharing that with me and I remember that was the big take take home from that was we sort of both knew on on our on on reflection that it had to be a personal opinion because it was not in a professional room and we know the NHS and all privacy I mean I get asked if I'm sitting in a in a birth center like the other day this happened to me I mean, I'm literally sitting there waiting for something because something's happening and I'm out of the room, just even if I'm getting a drink of water. I can't even be in the vague vicinity of the midwife station in case I overhear yeah, yeah. 
somebody's information, right? So that's how private it is. And yet, so therefore we can deduce that what she's throwing up there is personal irritation, <laughs> something like that. Because well, more than that, you you called it criminal at the time, which I think is fair enough. She didn't write it on the report, so the obstetrician didn't talk to me about it. It actually wasn't like a thing. It was like, I don't know whether it was like, yeah, I mean, like, I'm still trying to give her the benefit of the doubt. I don't know whether it like was a thing that she saw and thought but didn't write down, but it just like, anyway. Like that kind of thrown around. Is there any wonder that women are losing trust in ourselves and handing our trust over to caregivers because we're getting fear instilled That's- and then you go into an intervention process because you're suddenly so scared about your baby's life because you're having these comments thrown at you that you don't know what they mean. You don't know if they're true because you think, you well, don't know if they're true about this than I do. So I think this is like you're you're right, and I can see how this goes basically two ways that it either pushes you to completely lose trust in yourself because it's such a scary thing. I was like, you know, I'm sitting there. I remember. Exactly, you know, I had that panic rising in my body, that feeling of being about to panic, and um, and thinking I've already, you know, like my baby's going to have like some brain damage because it doesn't have any blood going to its head right now, <clears throat> and that's my fault because I should have had this induction when they told me three days ago or whatever something. You know, that's the first thing that came to my to my head. But then I spoke to you, but I spoke to you, Nessie, and I spoke to my midwife. I rang my midwife and my midwife was just, she didn't say much, but she just kind of was calm and everything's okay. Just wait to hear what the obstetrician has to say and that kind of thing. And that just kind of calmed me down a little bit. Anyway, so I didn't find out till later that none of this was written on the obstetrician's like papers or whatever. Um, and, and so she didn't talk to me about it. And then basically the rest of the story is that I ended up waiting. The I was in the, I can't remember what it's called, the maternity. The MAU, what's it, Maternity Assessment Unit, um, which I found out every time I went up to the um, desk to be like, when am I going to be seen? It's a, it's effectively a maternity A&E where you are triaged based on your need. And so I sat there all day and each time they told me this and each time it was no, not my appointment, obviously that bolstered my confidence that I wasn't in like immediate danger because I was literally surrounded by all these women who clearly like were in a more you know, difficult situation than I was. And I got to see them come and go and stuff whilst I was just sitting there. It was really annoying because I hadn't brought a book or anything anyway. But but, but actually, that, that meant that I did have time to like research anhydraminase, which is no no waters and how it, it is actually uh, thought it might have something. Lonnie probably knows a lot about this. Um, it might have something to do with the end of pregnancy and like the fact that you don't have waters there is actually a sign that you know you'll get like labor's imminent not not i don't know whether it's a sign or whether it's like the kind of something that happens that that could be linked to the onset of labor anyway and all of so i see all these women come and go i don't know yeah for for first time mums listening or anyone who hasn't had too much of an experience with the ctg machines i i think the way it works is you have to have like 10 clip, ten good minutes on the machine where you have uh, enough kicks and, and the right heart rate and that kind of thing. So lots of the, and I think a lot of the women at the MAU were there because, you know, they hadn't felt their baby move or something like that. And so 
when we're being put on these CTG machines, you can't see them because they're behind a curtain, but you can tell who's in there and for how long and stuff like that. And some people were on there for like 40 minutes or an hour and a half or something like that. And still like no, no panicking, but you know, have to wait for this good 10 minutes. And then they put me on the CTG machine and I was like, how long? And I asked the midwife who was hooking me up, like, how long do, am I going to have to be on this? Because I didn't understand this 10 minute thing at the time. Um, and she was like, oh, it, it depends. We need this. We need these 10 minutes. So probably 20 minutes, half an hour to get. And and she came like she came in and took me off after 10 minutes because my my first 10 minutes were fine. And I was the only person that entire day who I'd seen who'd been on the machine for that short amount of time. So that also like it was just like my baby is literally completely perfect. It's just as it was before. Um, and I guess, Natalie, this is part of the story you quite like, isn't it? Where I was hooked up to this machine and and that's when I really started to get my calmness back and get my cool back and thinking about how I, it was really me who knew what was going on and not anybody and not anybody here. And that was because of this experience on this CTG machine where it was just a really like wonderful experience for me. So it's strapped up and you're, you have this little buzzer in your hand and you're supposed to press the button when, your baby's moving so i think so that the machine can connect the 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 increase in the baby's heart rate with a movement and you have the machine sitting in front of you and you can see the heart rate and you can see like there's another little thing that dings when the baby moves and just i loved how i just i knew what the machine was going to do before it did it obviously because it's my my body <laughs> and it was always just like this little delay like I just knew and I, so I so I would look at the machine and be like the heart rate it's going to go up now and I could see Lula's heart rate go up <laughs> and then and then I was like oh it kicks on on it's funny because I hadn't even like got into this before but you know you can in that moment I didn't think I could tell when a kick was like coming, but I could like tell when a kick, I didn't even need to wait for the kick to like happen. Like, you know, you can feel them like gearing up to like, so it just really brought me back into my self and into my relationship with with my body. Because I still think about pregnancy as like, it's funny even thinking of calling my daughter by her name in that point, because we just weren't two people, you know, we were, it was, it was all me, <laughs> you know. It, oh God, that's it, isn't it? That's yeah. it. And I feel great. I feel very, you know, I didn't, we hadn't found out her sex and so we hadn't named her and I wasn't thinking about her as her. And that really helped me, I think, just think of, I just thought of, of us, us as, as me, the way that you think of, you know, what the voices the voices in your head when you're talking to yourself you think of it you know it's like it's all you isn't it so massive and so misunderstood not even misunderstood completely omitted from maternity care is this concept that mother and baby are still on emotional physical spiritual side every possible level joined which even makes i know that i've got a beef about this but if a mother reaches down and feels her own baby between her legs, that's absolutely natural and instinctive. But to be told there's a baby between your legs, I always think it kind of, it's such a kind of misunderstanding that the mother knows everything already 
in a much more intuitive way than needing to be told, oh, there is a head, do you want some incentive? Here's your baby coming, feel the head between your legs. Is such an externalizing, I don't want to say sort of arrogance on behalf of us. Me, you know, mid doulas, I've probably done it at some point in my life, although I'd like to think I haven't, but because I just think that, who am I? to tell you that your baby's there you know yeah. it's you it's like me saying you're alive laura you're alive did you know you're alive laura did you did you yeah <laughs> it's it's really funny because i used to be a, a lawyer so like i understand the the law like and one of the things in the one of the one of the most important things and i wish i i wish it was it had to be like written in every like on a sign in every maternity department but your your baby is not anybody else's like business or anything until it's outside of your body and has taken its first breath that's that's where the law considers that you know other people if they think they know better for your baby they can they can take charge at that point but it's literally it is written in the case law that your that whilst the baby is inside your body, regardless, and it's really specific, it's regardless of what you want to do, even if your decision is certain to end the life of your baby, it's your decision because it, at that point, the law considers it's all your body. Like the baby, when it's inside you, it's not a baby separate from you. It is part of your body. And I think that kind of comes into, yeah, I, I just wish everybody knew about that because there's so many other things that come up, you know, stories I've read of whatever about people, the, the worst end of the spectrum, people being threatened with social services for their unborn babies. And it's like, this isn't a child yet. Social services have no remit over this, over this child. The only person who has any control over this, this baby is, is you because it's part of your body at this time. Nearly at the end of the story, that was it. All of that that experience of knowing that I I could predict what the machine was going to do made me feel much more comfortable. Just sent back to the waiting room for another two or three hours so I had more time to get comfortable with how I was feeling about it. And then I had a meeting with the obstetrician who, you know, had a much nicer manner than the, the sonographer. I also wasn't allowed Tom in that meeting either, so we had to have him on, on the phone. And... By that point, the advice that the obstetrician was giving was was so generic. It was about a hypothetical woman who hypothetically is at a forty two week at the forty two week part of her pregnancy, um, and the risks that are associated with that. And I would and that that would mean it would be advisable to have an induction at this point. And I just kind of was was over it by this point because I was like. You know, I was like, I, f I feel fine. Those statistics don't apply to any individual pregnancy, least of all mine right now, because I'm telling you there's there's nothing wrong with me. I feel exactly the same way as I did yesterday when I was in the realms of acceptable pregnancy lengths. Um, and so I went home and I rang my midwife on the way home. It's, it's funny, I can't believe I neglected to ring you. Um, and so when you say that I turned up at yoga the next day, you're surprised because I, I just complete, I was quite overwhelmed by that point that it had been a long day. And so I didn't, I'm sorry, I didn't bring you, but it was good, good for the surprise the next day. I rang my midwife instead and had a long chat with her and explained what had happened with the sonographer and how I thought it was really out of order and all of that. And she was like, she was very, 
very like sympathetic. And I went home and then I burst into tears at my front door. I'd been like so strong, you know, strong all day. And then just like burst into tears at my front door and went and got in, got in the bath and rang one of my friends who I know has the most sort of grounded in her body experience on earth. And she helped me just talk through it and feel good about what had happened and how I managed to deal with it, even though it was, yeah, horrific. Well, as I say, she came the next day and everything was perfect, as you as you predicted. Um, but what I love about that is coming into your own home, that idea that you've sort of come home and you come home and you cry and you come back into your body in, in full, no more holding on to yourself, no more needing to second, well, you weren't second guessing yourself, but no need to be vigilant anymore and you come in and that's what you look like in yoga you sort of look completely transformed actually and that was I would say that's your trust embodied that you literally walked in with your head high in a kind of yeah of course I'm here yeah I haven't had my baby yet that's why I'm here <laughs> <laughs> it's funny remember I rang so I rang you after the blood shunting moment and you said you know you said, how are you going to sleep tonight after you've been told information like that? And I was like, yeah, how am I going to sleep tonight after I've been told information like that? But actually, I'm, you know, after the, the then the events of the day, I was really worn out. <laughs> You'd re-piece together your trust. Thank you, Laura. I absolutely love it. And I tell you why, in this fast-paced world where we never we get bits and bobs of stories and actually we need, I wanted this podcast to be proper help to people. I was actually thinking there's two people I know who could really help. But I don't want us just to be chatting. I want us to be able to show people a model in a way of how they might access this themselves if they feel really, you know, either worn down or they meet a moment like this. Because they can, you, you and it needs us to break it down forensically, actually. I prefer it to be continuous like this rather than us chatting because we can easily do chit chat, you know. I want this to be helped. So, Lonnie, tell us because we have a sentence which I'm going to leave you to say that um to st- that your doctor as it fits into a story but it is a good heading for it and say that sentence because it's a very good place to start yeah well I guess I'll start with the sentence that was said to me um postnatally um after my first birth which was a private obstetric led birth um which was you had a disproportionate trust in your own body. After successfully birthing an amazing baby, that's what I was told postnatally. Um, I think trusting yourself, the problem we have in today's society is maternity services are missing the part where we're supposed to be empowered to trust ourselves. That's during pregnancy, that's during birth, that's also postnatally, including breastfeeding. So we're already set up to not trust ourselves in pregnancy, to not trust that we can birth our baby. And then how are we supposed to deal with our baby after birth, breastfeeding, et cetera. So I think we need to come back to knowing that we have an innate ability to grow a baby, to birth a baby and to care for that baby and breastfeed that baby. And that. I think we're not getting that from our maternity services. So we need to get that from women around us. We need to get that from pregnancy yoga, hypnobirthing, et cetera, because we can do it. We do know how to do it. It's just we're not getting that reminder that we can. So, so my first my first birth, I'm I went through I had a really great pregnancy. So my first 
thing that I knew to do when pregnant was go shopping for an obstetrician. I thought that was the thing to do. Little did I know that was a big mistake for me and for what I wanted, but I that was my belief of what to do. In Australia, everybody kind of has a private obstetric birth and that was my understanding. So I found a lovely obstetrician, very um, famous private hospital in London, and I thought I was in the best care. Um, so, and her and I built a great relationship and trust throughout the pregnancy because my pregnancy was smooth. I felt great. Uh, the baby was growing well, all of my tests were positive. And I told her I want a natural birth. And she was very supportive of that up until a certain point. So we did well until 39 weeks. Um, and 39 weeks, we then started to discuss, you know, what's going to happen, you know, and she said, you know, you're going to give birth in, in the next week or two and I'll be offering you the induction within the next week, you know. Suddenly like, hang on, what induction? <laughs> I'm 39 weeks, I felt great. And it was kind of like, well, let's talk again next week. So I was cool. I was doing yoga several times a week and that was like vinyasa, power yoga, all sorts. I was just in a great place. And then I showed up couple of days after my due date and I was like cool you know haven't had my baby yet and she was like yeah cool let's induce and I was like wait a minute so I guess it was she assured me that she trusted my body up until that point because I guess there's not much she can do right because I'm the one growing the baby but suddenly she's like no I don't feel comfortable we need to get this baby out and I was like but but why do we have to get this baby out and I couldn't seem to get to the bottom of why exactly she wanted this baby out. I pushed back for another week. So now we're 41 weeks. And then it was suddenly like we we're in danger zone. And I was walking around like an alien in this private hospital because nobody goes into 41 weeks. And she told me that she believed that I had very low amniotic fluid. I needed a scan immediately. Um, and that low amniotic fluid basically meant, because I said, what does that mean? And she said, well, it means that during the labor, the baby's going to compress the cord. Um, he's going to go into distress and we're going to require an emergency cesarean. She said, there's an 80% chance of that happening. And I was suddenly like, what cesarean? Like what happened to my natural birth and my perfect, amazing baby that's been so great during pregnancy? Suddenly there's no fluid left. And he suddenly doesn't know when he's supposed to come. Um, and, you know, this was delivered to me by somebody who I formed a really strong relationship with during pregnancy and I really trusted. Um, Lonnie, can I just ask you a question about those um, uh, those reasons why not having, do you know any more about whether those reasons are um, fair enough? Like that to have, lo that having low amniotic fluid means that the cord will be, like, is that, do you know about that? Like, is that? I don't think so. I don't know for sure. But I, what I do know is that low amniotic fluid is to be expected at 41 and 42 weeks because baby's bigger, baby's getting ready to come. And that's what happens. I mean, most women aren't getting scanned at that at the point before labor. So do we know if the lady that's giving birth at 39 weeks, do we know what amniotic fluid levels she actually has? I mean, I haven't seen statistics on this because most people aren't being scanned and how accurate are the scans There's two ways of measuring amniotic fluid and they could or could not be accurate. 
put it this way. When I gave birth, there was fluid. I don't know about you, Laura. Yeah, same. <laughs> so funny. Plenty. <laughs> Can I speak for everybody listening? And um, independent midwives have a completely different opinion of this. And I always think they're the gold standard. As I always say, they can't take risks because they're privately insured. And they are always very comfortable with low amniotic fluid at that very late point in pregnancy. So do you feel, so actually I got this wrong in a way. It wasn't attrition. You did get a set of shock. You got you got shocked, Lonnie, into, into a distrust there. Like she's trying to shock you into don't trust your body at that point. So it was... It does happen over a couple of weeks, though, because they start quite early in the private hospitals. They want to induce you like ASCP. Um, yeah, so I got booked. I got booked inductions. I kept cancelling inductions every time I'd cancel them. The obstetrician was straight on the phone. So I then got pressured into daily CTGs, which I I was doing because I got I kind of got railroaded into a place of fear that maybe my baby's not okay and maybe they're right and maybe I'm doing something really dangerous because also my husband fell off the fence and he was like, you should be listening to the doctor. And my mother was like, I don't know what to do. And I'm crying in the shower alone going, I'm the last man standing. So I'll go to my CTG just in case I am doing something really dangerous. So I'm at my CTG and they're like, it's fine. And then I had the midwives sneak into the room saying, help me to help you. Let me do a sweep. Let's do everything we can to get this baby going so that, the doctor stays happy. We need to get labor underway. If you don't want to be induced, let's try and like do it another way. Little did I know sweeps are an induction. And would I have a sweep ever again? No, ever. No way. Not because I think that like, you know, I basically, I just think that do we even know that sweeps work? Why are we trying to open up a cervix that's going to open on its own? Let the cervix open. It's going to open. So I went through all of this and then I guess the breaking point for me, I, I ended up in tears. I was in a really, I was in a very emotional place. I was almost 42 weeks and I'd just been absolutely run down by everybody. I was the last man standing. I went out for a CTG. I was actually in a really good place this particular morning. I remember getting the tube up to the um, hospital. I had my music in my ears and had the CTG and I was, put in this really nice room and the obstetrician came in and she said, well, I mean, she said like, basically it's point of no return. You're not going to ever have a natural birth. It's baby's going to go into distress. It's too late. There's no fluid. Like, what do you want to do? There's a nice room here. Do you want to just start the induction now? Otherwise I can organize you a nice cesarean and we can skip all of the labor part because most women at this point would want to do that because you've got an 80% chance of going into an emergency cesarean anyway. And I looked at her and I said, okay, uh, I basically, I wanted to give up. I was like, oh, maybe I'll just have a cesarean and try again next baby. And I said to her, if I have a cesarean now, what are my chances of having a vaginal delivery next time? She was like, no, cesarean now, cesarean forever, basically is her policy. So I thought to myself, no, screw you. I'll take the chance. Induce me, bring it on. I'm pushing this baby out. And she was <laughs> just so you know, even if you, we do get to the point of vaginal birth, it'll be pulled out by forceps. And I was like, cool, I don't mind. Just bring it on. Just give me the induction. So we induced um, and I just spoke to my baby the whole time. I knew he was a boy and I knew his name was Ollie. So I said, come on, Ollie, we're doing this. So my entire induction was me talking to Ollie saying, keep going, we're going to do this. 
and oh. he worked it's like he worked well with me and he decided you know we're doing this so we did and he was laboring beautifully so I responded really well to the induction the contractions came on well I accepted lots of things that I didn't want such as epidurals and such but I stayed mobile I had an amazing midwife join me during the the latter hours and she walked in and she said I see your hypnobirthing I've read your birth plan get out of the bed you've still got movement in you let's keep going and we did and then at some point the obstetrician came in and she said well I'm allowing you to we're past the point of cesarean I'm allowing you to keep going I was like thanks very much and she was like and then at the, the next point she came in and she said we're past the point of forceps god knows how she knows all of this it's like she's got her own framework that's totally different to what like knowing what my body wants so we kept going and I she said okay we're ready to start pushing um, in relation to your story, Laura, about um, knowing more about the CTG, I, I was being continuously monitored. And at some point the midwife said to me, okay, I'm going to like help you to know when to push. But I hadn't t- taken an epidural top up for ages and I was feeling everything. So I could feel the contractions long before the machine knew. So I said to her, I need to push now. She was like, push when you want to push. So I just started pushing. And of course, baby started coming. Um, I pushed for less than 20 minutes. And then at some point the obstetrician wanted to get involved. So she decided she wanted to stick the vacuum in and the last three pushes helped me to pull the baby out, I guess. So she would feel like she was useful, I guess, because baby was coming anyway. So don't really know, but baby came. And then I was told that at postnatally that I had a disproportionate trust in my body and that I pushed her into reactive care. I had a positive birth because I was absolutely determined that my baby and I were going to have a positive experience of him being born. But I tell you what, I went through a lot to get even a vaginal birth. Everything yeah. was me and I had to fight all odds to get that. And that, hence why second birth, I registered at about 20 weeks with a caseloading midwife. And I said to her, don't even think about talking to me about any kind of intervention or obstetricians or anything I might invite you to the birth and this is what we're doing. And she was amazing. Sure enough, my second birth, I had a 42-week birth, which is my gestation clearly. And I birthed with a midwife at home on my terms. I love that. But unfortunately, it took me a lot of fighting through a first birth to get to the place where I felt confident enough in my own body to say, please, everybody leave me alone to birth my baby. And I feel sad about that because women shouldn't have to go through this. We should be empowered to trust our bodies. And I want that for other women. And I want women to know that birth works and our bodies know what we have to do. Oh, you put it really well. It's so, it almost gets me when it's so interesting hearing your stories as timelines because you can sort of see it's so powerful what you're describing you can see it in your energy hear it in your voices I can hear it coming up from your bellies the memories of that feeling of regaining trust in your two various ways um but it, one almost has to get a bit um cynical and a bit like and think is this because it's so powerful that it is controlled I don't know I went to see that film women talking at the weekend and um which is amazing about a completely different area of of, of experience and I I don't want to get kind of too 
in a feminist hat thing here because I just feel it's it should be everybody's experience that they're allowed to trust themselves, male, you know, men and women, and I don't want to just get, you know, into that the politics of it. I want to get into the humanity of it. You know, the humanity of believing in your body is the most is it's it's your God given right. What you said, Laura, about the law. It's ironic that the law honors it more than the science. You know. Yeah, I, I find that I that's kind of what I was trying to get across. I do find it ironic, and I and I and I love the recognition that it's there in law. It's just a shame that that doesn't seem to have any. It hasn't permeated through the, through the ranks all the way that you're treated. I can't believe it. Something we but, haven't uh, said is is what is the fear? You said earlier what we've looked at the sort of at the, you know, them throwing this stuff at you. But if you were to like really think like given you really had to both be in the fire and brimstone of those moments when you're shaking Laura and Lonnie I can hear you haven't even explained that to us but I can feel it for you when you had to go and into those meetings and have let's imagine you in that meeting when your obstetrician comes in finally and says well this is it now that kind of takeover let's call it a you know, you'd be on a bed, you'd be, you know, you're a strong woman, but, you know, you're being countered by another woman who says, I know better than you. What is it you think is driving that need of, let's call it the system, because I don't think it's individuals' faults as such. What is it that's causing the system to want to destroy our own trust in ourselves because it is destroying it is destroying i don't think we can think of it any other way what is it i think birth is so powerful and women we we kind of we have that power within us and birth is is unpredictable and it's messy and it's it's everything it's something so amazing that the medical system can't recreate by induction they can't quite harness exactly that power so I think it's like if we allow women to birth our babies how we're supposed to, then we don't fit into a neat and tidy framework of the medical way of life. So I think it's putting us in that induction and cesarean way, then we're able to be more predictable and more controlled and more staying in our box. And I know I don't want to get too feminist either, but we are not meant to be in the box, particularly when we're birthing babies. We need to be out there to allow our bodies to birth our babies and to be supported by people around us that believe in us the way that we believe in ourselves. Uh, just to explain why, in case anyone listening thinks, well, why don't you want to get feminist? Can I explain that? It's my feeling about that. It's not because I'm not an ardent feminist, I am. It's because I feel that birth is above politics in the sense that I feel like the isms of this current society can tend, can kind of make people switch into a this camp, that camp thing. And I feel this is a bigger, deeper thing here because it's like a cosmic secret, you know, women's power that is far beyond, you know, a kind of agency in society. It's, it's, I mean, actually, as you were talking about it, I was just thinking it reminds me of, let's get biblical. It reminds me of like, there's Adam and Eve, right? They get they get kicked out of the Garden of Eden because they bite the apple. Eve bites the apple, right? And the biting of the knowledge, the you know the tree of knowledge, is supposed to have relegated human beings to a state of forever being limited in their knowledge. Ironically, that's what God was saying, effectively, and what the Bible said. And yet, here's the the crazy bit: when you give birth, 
I think you are restored to that state of true deep knowing where where I remember I remember a couple of times in my doula life I've had women literally put their hand on me this one woman said to me once she went I know everything now and she was at transition and I do think there is that moment where you if we were really to define that trust it's just so expansive and it would make sense to me biologically from an evolutionary perspective that we would need to be in such a state of, I don't want, you know, like, almost like an understanding that is so deep that because we've got to protect these children. They are they are the human species that is furthering the the, 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 the human race. They, we, they, are, they are, you know, we're, from a survival perspective, women hold a kind of, ironically, a control over nature in a sense. We can, we're working with nature to get control of something. And there's something about science when it wants to control the birth process that, as you say, doesn't want to know that it's possible. <laughs> it, it doesn't want to know that we might know because, yeah. but if you, if it could be harnessed, if, if it could, if women could be trusted in their process, oh my gosh, can you imagine how the world would be if we could restore some faith in life itself in that way? With, of course, the risk and predictability that there will always be that tiny element that we can't control. But what you're throwing out when you don't allow some of that to breathe, or all of it to breathe, is so much, it's so huge a loss, you know, to, to just to, to not let women feel their own experience in the way you have both explained so well. It's beyond, it's unthinkable, really, the squandering. It's disgusting, really. I think that what you've, what you've said is, totally right and it's funny because i do i do want to get a feminist on this because there's so many things that contribute to why this i think happens in hospitals in birth and i think it goes from a very like women-centered issue that society doesn't want us to have autonomy over our bodies generally which you know, affects us as women on a daily basis from a sexual harassment point of view, like a rape culture, all of that. Like it's it's important for those aspects of our society that we don't believe in our bodies and people don't believe in our bodies as well because they don't and they don't believe us in those kind of situations. All the way through to that much bigger aspect you were just talking about, like the lifting of the veil of like the of how how the world works and how really how like nature nature works you know and the fact that I don't think I I didn't understand until I had a baby that from modern society to like work the way it does we have to think that human beings are like supreme to everything else and that our knowledge is supreme to everything else and having a baby makes it really especially having a baby the way that we did and the fight between the the medicalized intervention birth and, and the natural birth is like well, obviously, the natural birth is offers some things. I know the quickest and con- most convenient and most efficient way to have a baby because that's what that's the way that nature works. You need it needs to be the most it needs to do it the simplest way. So there's from that individual scale of somebody being catcalled on the street and not being able to fight back all the way through to like generally us as humans globally thinking that we know better than nature. That all comes together in these moments in the hospital. Yeah. And then there's the additional part that I think plays a really huge role in this is that the, I guess you could, it comes down to like the medicalization of birth is the fact that doctors generally are there to treat sick people, pregnant people aren't sick. So in terms of this 
paternalistic advice giving situation like it's not I don't think it's ever really a good way to treat a patient but sometimes people do need advice on their ailments that's what you go to a doctor for but when you're not ailed then you don't want or need advice you know so I guess insisting on the primacy of human beings as on top of nature the more years I'm in this I realize that that's what's at base of it in a way for me it feels like my new favorite word is coherence that there is a natural coherence to the pregnant body and as it moves into birth when I've observed it and observed it and been alongside it you know countless times if I let my breath out what I'm a what I'm alongside is something so coherent in the beautifulest sense of that word. It has an, an inter, interactive, dynamic beauty to it that all by itself coheres. It, it works as an ecosystem and it works in direct relation to, to everything else in nature, just like spring, summer, autumn, winter, the moon goes up, the sun comes down, you know, you know, all those layers of reality that we know as human beings, everything interleaves and works in this harmony. Yes, sometimes it's flawed, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes something misfires, chaos theory, whatever you want to call it. But if we accept there is that, the vast majority of life works in a beautiful, coherent way. And when you're right locked bang into those moments with those doctors and those, those medical situations, I feel there is a sort of cultural existential terror and and, and that we have to insist. I mean, I find my, I've got a problem with the, um, here I'm going to go really political and uh, and risk a kind of onslaught, but my, I've got a current struggle with climate crisis panic because there are two ways you can view environmental issues. There's, there's we need, we are full of blame and guilt and we need to, con- we need to, take charge as custodians of the world and protect it from all the shit we've thrown at it. We are terrible as a race and we have ruined the universe, right? So let's get going and be green. Right, there's that version, which starts from guilt and shame and still asserts that we are the top of the of the food chain. Or you go into a truly working alongside nature with love and belonging to nature, not being on top of nature. To me, that's the most obvious way to be green. There is a beautiful natural order that we don't have to be as terrified as we are, I don't think, because I think if we start working alongside um, nature, it's a better way of doing it, rather than what the current narrative is telling us is we need to get a handle on this. And that still kind of like implies to me a dominance that has got, and it's the dominance that's got us in this shit in the first place. So it's it's similar to birth. And you know what I mean? It's like, and I would say even the birth centers represent that, actually. They're a kind of, oh, yeah, yeah, we agree with you. We agree with you. Let nature take its course while we stand there staring at you and doing vaginal exams and giving you the illusion of autonomy. Yeah, yeah go on. It's so powerful and so beautiful. And for pregnant women listening to this, I don't want you to think you're for sure going to be railroaded into all these things. But do have in your mind that maternity services is not currently set up to empower you to listen to yourself. So it's the responsibility right now is on you as a pregnant woman to find ways to trust yourself, to listen to your body. And that might be hypnobirthing and reading Natalie's book, how to have a baby, reading the positive birth book, surrounding yourself with people that speak positively about the beauty that is birth. We really need to trust in ourselves. And 
So you need to, like Laura did, build your own trust in yourself so that when you come into combat, if you do towards the end of your pregnancy, that you're equipped to be able to deal with it and to still be able to hang on to that power of birth. And Laura, what would you say to people? It's funny, my that same cousin is pregnant with her second baby now and I saw her the day before yesterday and she's preparing, for, you know, she wants to have a home birth this time instead of, you know, because of what happened to her last time. And she was asking, I gave her your book, <laughs> um, but she was asking about what, you know, things helped during labour and I couldn't think of, I couldn't think of anything really. I mean, there were lots of things that helped during labour, but the, but the main thing that helped was knowing that I could do it it's very useful, especially if you have like, you know, a long labor to have the, these comforting techniques and whatever. But but the reality is like, you don't need, <laughs> you don't need anything. You don't need ice cubes or a comb. You don't need anything, you know, like, <laughs> because you, because you, because you can do it. And that's basically, I was like, all you need to do is, is try to find the moments, you know, I can remember probably transition. I don't know. I can remember like a split second of panic in the middle of my labor. I can't do this. And just shutting it down and being like, no, I can't. And then I just carried on. And that was the, that was the only moment that I felt like I really like needed something. And all I needed was to be there for myself. <laughs> so yeah, go on. First with Ivy, I had about four hours of I can't do this, which was really funny. We had what we call, we went into the wilderness where the waters weren't breaking. Yeah. And I just kept, I remember I was like a bear with a sore head going around the room going, I can't do this. But at no point did I ever think, oh, I need to transfer into hospital because I really can't do this. I just think I needed to get out there. I can't do this, but I'm doing it anyway. And that's, my body was just doing it. And I was saying these words, but I think I just needed to say them to say, this is really hard. But my body just kept doing it. And out that baby. And I looked at her and I just thought my body knew when to start labor. My body knew how to go through labor. It wasn't the most straightforward labor, but we got through it exactly how we needed to. And she was born there on the floor looking perfect. And I just went, great. And I jumped up on the bed. I picked her up and I said, amazing. I just birthed the baby and I didn't even need to think about it. And like you say, I didn't need ice cubes. I didn't need a comb. And I didn't need anything. I just needed everybody to leave me alone in the dark to birth my baby. Oh, yeah. I've gone shivery. That's so beautiful. Just, it's like, it's just, I actually, I, you know, I'm such an old, I don't know how to describe it, you know, that I would be used to these conversations, but it still gives me, you know, hearing you put it like that. It is, it is, it is. It's so simple. I love it. Thank you. Well, how lucky are we to be women and to have this opportunity because it's a the most powerful experience I've ever been through. My most, my greatest achievements of my life are my births. However you birth, we are amazing. And how privileged we are to be able to have that experience and look at our babies and say, I made you, I birthed you. Now I'm nourishing you. It's, it's absolutely incredible. And I just, I'm in awe of all women in this position. We just are really, really amazing. On that note, <laughs> thank you, thank you, you too. I really appreciate everything you said. Come back again. So thank you so much both to both of you, to Laura and Lonnie, for sharing that because I'm thinking there's loads that people I'm hoping can take from that. Bye-bye. Natalie, you're amazing. Thank you so much.
Yeah. Thank you. Bye, ladies. Thank you. Bye.